Parts of southeast Queensland have been shut off, with roads cut, schools closed and waterways bulging, as a persistent deluge continues to drench an already saturated region. A major flood warning remains in place for several rivers and creeks, with the Weather Bureau warning we're not out of the woods just yet. We respectfully acknowledge that Hypecast is recorded on traditional Aboriginal lands, which have been sustained for thousands of years. We honour their ongoing connection to these lands and seek to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians. The urgency of climate change has been notoriously challenging to communicate. Whilst the science is clear, a lack of immediate, tangible risk has plagued political will on climate action for decades. Extreme weather events felt across the world, and in Australia in particular in recent years, has finally started to shift mainstream public sentiment. However, for those whose job it is to quantify risk, the predicted impacts of climate change are thoroughly modelled. Rapidly shifting expectations of government accountability, organisational governance and corporate fiduciary duties have driven a growing body of climate change litigation, shareholder activism and, of course, motivation to protect the bottom line. Today I sit down with Alex Pui, who is joining us from Tokyo. Alex is Head of Natural Catastrophes and Sustainability in the Asia-Pacific for insurance group Swiss RE. I'm also here with Gavin Ashley, Better Cities and Regions Leader Hip Hi, to discuss the very real considerations of climate risk. Alex, what are the considerations of climate risk as they apply to individuals, organisations and governments? What considerations does climate risk raise for organisational governance and fiduciary duties? That, that's a very broad question and it's a, a very good one as well, Laura. From my perspective, I think the quantification of risk, just knowing what we're dealing with, would be absolutely the, the, the starting point, uh, especially the physical quantification of climate risk. So uh, I think, as you said, you've already gone into fiduciary duties, the liability aspects. And if you look back a couple of years ago, when the Network for Greening the Financial Systems was set up um, by Mark Carney, then Bank of England governor and others, they, they, they created a really good uh, framework, which is, I think, the physical climate risk, transition risk, and liability risk aspects, right? So there are three pillars. However, the way I see it, I think we do need to start with physical climate risk before any of the others, because without uh, a good or as good as possible appreciation for physical climate risk, it's really hard to get a meaningful view on uh, how, how fast transition risk will manifest or even like the liability risk or duty of care. Uh, one example, right, in terms of transition risk is if you look at how it follows physical risk, look at the bushfire events of 2020 the, in, in Australia, the unprecedented 2019 to 20 bushfires that wiped out about what, 18 million hectares. And you look at the government response after that, Royal Commission and others, it's really a call to action to increase urgency and therefore increase pressure on you know, the transition risk aspects. Also, how do you then, and I'm not a legal expert here, and I want to caveat that, but how do you then look at liability risks if you can't establish a duty of care principle, right? If, if let's say, firms, organizations, societies, governments, individuals don't even know what the, the requirements are in terms of appraising physical climate risks and, and after that, taking uh, preventative actions or mitigative actions to ensure that societies are kept safe and to fulfil those fiduciary duties. Alex, you've taken Gavin and I through your climate risk model, which is, is pretty you know, compelling viewing. Would you maybe be able to just explain a bit about that for listeners who haven't seen it themselves? 
I'll start from first principles. So at, at Swiss Re, we're one of the world's largest uh, reinsurers, and we've been in business for over 150 years. So I'd like to think that we've already been negotiating climate risk for a very, very long time, because climate change isn't something that will manifest just in the future. It has already occurred ever since with the Industrial Revolution, where we've been extracting carbon from the ground and putting it into the atmosphere. So the climate has already evolved and the historical data, temperature records and you know data, flood data and everything else is really confirming that upwards trend in most cases, increasing uh, severity and frequency of climate disasters, for example. A big part of our business involves taking natural catastrophe risks, including climate, natu- uh, climate catastrophes. So uh, what we essentially are doing is sharing that same risk view or very similar risk view with our you know, client prospects and, and to really fulfill what, what one of the big challenges uh, that's been set forward by our, our group CEO, Christian Mumentala, which is to make the world more resilient. So it's not just a, a catchphrase or buzzwords. Uh, I think we take it very seriously. And that's why we're, we're really trying to promote increased, you know, awareness of the climate risk topic at all levels. And Gav, from your perspective, you have been involved for many years, increasingly speaking to to different organisations, be it private sector, public sector, about trying to quantify this risk and and obviously mitigate it. How have you, you know, engaged with those conversations? I guess from my perspective, Laura, probably the first thing to point out is that risk is understood to varying degrees in all of those contexts already. But probably the thing about climate risk that's difficult is that it's a bit of a moving feast and as the climate changes it also has that sort of temporal scale mapped to like the global emission scenarios called representative concentration pathways. When I think about those various audiences that you that you're talking to talking to say individuals organizations and and governments the the bits that remain constant are the hazards things like increased temperatures, extreme heat, sea level rise, etc. But it's the level of influence and control and responsibility that sort of changes across those across levels. So, for example, if you're a homeowner, your level of control and influence might be when you're building on stumps, so you allow a, a water pathway underneath. It might be making sure that you've got good knowledge about flood conditions and how they, how they develop after a major rainfall but the role for government is obviously very different because they're feeding strategic planning and other decisions into where you're allowed to build in the first place so their governance involves making informed decisions and gathering the evidence to make those decisions on whereas like if you're an organization or an individual you're responding to those decisions but you don't to that extent, hold that liability. Absolutely. And Alex, I mean, what response do you do you usually get when you're presenting those kind of climate risk models to, say, commercial groups which have pretty significant asset investment portfolios because, say, they are in more of a position to have influence over particularly their portfolios and the liability would be more balanced towards them? So I think it really depends on the maturity of uh, each individual organisation or, or company that I'm, I'm presenting or speaking to. But in general, I think there's a, a push to better 
transparency around the tools and the limitations of those tools that are used, as well as a quantitative output. So to date, there's been increased understanding in terms of the qualitative output of climate risk. So for example, understanding hazards, as Gavin spoke about, like floods, tropical cyclones, hail, wildfires or bushfires and so forth. But how do you then connect that hazards, those are called hazards in our terminology here, to economic loss output, right? So we do that through something called catastrophe modeling. So that is something that is a tool that's widely used uh, in the uh, natural catastrophe insurance space to then quantify uh, the impact of catastrophes such as earthquake. Well, that's not a climate peril, but you know it is a big peril and the resulting loss uh, risk profile that's quantified in economic terms. So really using that framework where you're able to look at not only the hazard component, but the resilience of buildings and structures to that hazard and then estimating an output. So let's take a, a flood, for example, very simple example. When you say a particular building, let's call it a warehouse, right? And it's worth, let's say, $10 million and a flood height of, say, a meter would cause up to 20% damage, right? So that's about a $2 million loss. But obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty around that estimate for a single site location. But when you aggregate that across a law of large numbers or portfolio, the law of large numbers help you. And, and we train these models using real-life uh, claims experience. So uh, there are two ways of looking at it. But the good thing is we're really making the world more resilient as the largest reinsurer and paying out lots of claims when our clients need it the most. But I, I guess on the flip side, you can then say, yeah, we have a lot of claims to pay. But it also comes with a lot of data and understanding of the loss drivers to be able to better appreciate the actual economic loss potential stemming from these hazards and also the trends associated with those losses. Just to pick up that point, Alex, I think you've made a good one in that uh, the work that you do and the work that we do with local government, etc. you need to go beyond the hazard itself to understand the level of risk. Climate impacts are basically driven by the confluence of the hazard with your level of exposure and your degree of vulnerability. And it's the middle bit of those three elements that actually drives your financial loss in terms of the level of impact of any one event. And the vulnerability bit of that, it's not always hugely well understood that over a medium or longer term, you can actually reduce your vulnerability by making strategic decisions that are outside a physical infrastructure decision or outside the protection of a natural asset just by building capacity and knowledge within the organisation by working with other organisations on collaborative projects which overall reduce not the hazard itself but when the hazard does occur and you are exposed because you've got assets in those areas for example but you can actually limit your financial and other potential human losses associated with that because you you've built that capacity to respond over time. Kevin that's a good point and I'd like to add that in, although you're looking and appraising let's say a physical structure uh, loss experience, especially some of the larger ones in, in recent years, well, Thai floods about 10 years ago now, but th those, that was one of the, the largest shocks of 2011, uh, apart from the Christchurch or, or Canterbury earthquake sequence, as well as the Tohoku earthquake, right? And why that was, was because of just the sheer amount of business interruption losses, 
So you're looking at flow losses rather than just stock or, or a physical asset, but what's being produced by that physical asset and what are the interdependencies, who are the suppliers, what happens to the supply chain. And those tend to be a little bit more difficult to model in general. And, and it really requires, you know, not just taking model output at face value, but really questioning the model output and uh, applying scenario analysis and applying as simple as it sounds, common sense checks, right? So I think it's fair to say that all models usually produce the wrong output, but some may be useful. And that at age, it rings true even today, even in, in the age of advanced data analytics and machine learning and what else have you, the sheer amount of uncertainty mean, and, and the things that cannot be known right beforehand, it shows that there are other things that we can do to manage risk, not just solely rely on a model output. And that's the first part when you're looking at, okay, the uncertainty and the losses. But uh, as you said as well, Gavin, the mitigation steps that can be taken, and it really depends on how you're using the model and, and, and what you're doing with it. So for example, if you're looking at the annual uh, average cost, that's something that a model produces, right? So that typically will be relatively speaking higher for climate related perils or more frequency driven perils such as flood or, or storms, but that would be much smaller for let's say a Sydney earthquake, right? Or, or Newcastle mm-hmm. earthquake or something like that. But if you're a big company and you've got deep pockets and good cash flow and you're not worried about that, then you're more, more concerned about that, I think. Or even if you're an insurer, you're more concerned about the, the fatal shock to the company. So that's a capital loss event. And therefore, when they purchase reinsurance or, or even insurance, it's really to guard against that sort of capital shock event. So it really depends on how how you're using that model and and mitigation can only get you so far, for example, in protecting against smaller events, but then we're still exposed to the big event and that's where the risk transfer, what we call the residual risk element still exists. And that's why I think there there will always be a place for insurance companies and other mechanisms of risk transfer. Just to pick up on that, that point, Alex, there's many imperatives to respond to, to climate change, but do you find that element of, of economic risk and the risk of economic loss to be a productive way to engage, particularly with larger organisations? Is, is that what changes people's minds? Yes, yes, for sure. And I think when you start by quantifying something like acute perils, so for now we've just been talking about climate catastrophes, but there's obviously chronic risks, uh, as Gavin alluded to, the number of hot days, if you're a manufacturer or your construction company with, with uh, uh, lots of your workforce out and working outdoors essentially without the benefit of perhaps air conditioning, then that also becomes a problem. Or if you're a tourist operator, it really depends on the sector. The common currency or the common underlying sort of message is that, yes, it's going to be adverse impacts or some kind of impact. There might be even opportunities, right? We shouldn't just look at the downside, but it's really quantified by economic losses to start and therefore you can then feed that in into each individual organization to do the, some kind of cost benefit analysis um, and, and business strategy or whatever consideration that the organization is thinking about. So I'll give you an example. I like to, to be a bit more tangible. Recently, we had a, a conversation with a large tire manufacturer and they were concerned about their supply chain. Well, you know, they've suffered losses in the past, but very interestingly, they're talking about uh, something that I really didn't understand, which was the difference between uh, synthetic and natural rubber. 
So apparently natural rubber is a lot more resistant to high heat and large tires such as trucks and even airplanes, there's only a a limited amount of synthetic rubber that can get into them, right? Uh, That that can be used to construct them. But the thing is, if these roads get too hot, um, even the smaller tires, uh, like say for cars, when roads get too hot, one might need to start thinking about replacing all that synthetic rubber with natural rubber. And as you know, natural rubber trees don't just grow overnight, right? So they have to think about you know, these sort of longer term considerations and which is critical to their supply chain and their industry, uh, especially if they're one of the market leaders, right? So that was an interesting uh, piece of insight. It requires a lot of thinking on the part of each individual firm and industry, but how we can support is really establishing that hazard and vulnerability risk view and starting that conversation. And is that something that that you found from your engagements with various organizations, Gavin, that people will respond to the idea of of that quantifiable risk? And what opportunities do you see to then mitigate it? I think financial risk, sure. And that quantification element is hugely important, as Alex has pointed out. But I think what's happened in the last four or five years is there's also with uh, changes to legislation, legal risk associated with the operation of business and also the operation of uh, local, local government, for example. To flesh that out a bit, there's been work done at national um, level by the Centre for Policy Development, which has sort of highlighted that directors who don't adequately address climate risks might actually be personally responsible for not meeting their legal duties under the Corporations Act. So uh, for the first time, people who sit on boards are actually really looking very, very carefully beyond the financial to how they might be individually responsible for that. And I, at a Victorian level, there's actually been a bunch of changes recently to, say, the Local Government Act, which has put local government in a position where their responsibility for gathering good evidence to inform their own decision-making has increased, specifically around things like strategic planning. So if, for example... Uh, our local government was found to have ignored a climate risk in relation to rezoning a parcel of land or allowing building to take place in an area which had been highlighted as having flood risk or future flood risk, then down the track there is the potential that there could be legal implications for that decision. And so when those sorts of organisations are starting to see that financial risk and the legal risk and accidentally into a reputational risk alongside each other, it's all fairly compelling that something needs to be done. Often, if you're thinking about it from a local government perspective, for example, though a lot of the timing of, of, of taking measures is really important because the budgets that we're talking about to avoid the bigger risks uh, that are more long-term are, are big numbers and that level of change to physical and natural infrastructure isn't going to come from a rate space. It's going to have to come from other more innovative sources. That's a lot of points well made there, Gavin. And I I suddenly thought about it, actually, the drawing upon analogy between what you just said and maybe the asbestos situation, right? And James Hardy, I think most of us can recollect that. And it could be manifesting in somewhat similar fashion. And that's why, uh, given the complexity of the topic as well, I think I dare say that maybe climate change is slightly more comp- complex than asbestos, right? Understanding the dangers to human health or preempting them. But 
that's why we get involved in all these uh, climate standards measurements initiative in Australia. And we're also heavily involved with the TCFD to try and get a little bit of a, a sense of what sort of disclosure standard should be fit for purpose. Because if you really want to do things in an academic way and, and and because it's an emerging field of research as well, to, for example, to get granularity up to a district level there from a global climate model output, right? You've got to do either statistical or a dynamic downscaling. And statistical downscaling is arguably the more cost-effective way, but dynamic downscaling also gives you advantages and some people might want to do that. But the computational effort and just the sheer amount of effort it takes to run, for example, not just for one climate model, but for the whole ensemble, there are about 40 out there, I think, or more now in the world to be able to get that range of uncertainty that you then can work with becomes probably not fit for purpose. And, and because firms, organizations have differing levels of uh, capability, resource at their disposal, and also timelines. So, for example, if, if regulators are expecting reporting requirements or, or due diligence, these have to be considerations that are also balanced against finding the, the, the most accurate or the most technical view of risk possible out there. We've covered you know, a wide variety of topics as it, as it relates to the various levels of risk and the various levels of liability of who bear that risk. To wrap up and consider moving forward, from both of your perspectives, how do you think policy can better respond to climate risk? I'm a former town planner, so I think in planning policy, just that fundamental climate risk assessment built into the process of developing land or changing a use of land is a really important consideration. Just to flesh that out in the example, Fisherman's Bend is obviously a massive urban renewal area just south of the river there uh, near Port Melbourne. And that area alone, it ranges between, I think, one and a half metres and three metres above sea level. So you've got a situation there where if you get high tides associated with river flooding then areas of that land are already voluntarily compromised in terms of inundation and so the response wasn't to go we can't develop there weak because of the location of the land but the next tier down is what do we do about it and so the the response there was an integrated response where a climate climate readiness analysis was undertaken up front and out of the back of that came some infrastructure solutions including the landscape bund on the south side of the river and some really interesting technology solutions around releasing water from privately held rainwater tanks ahead of a, a big rainfall of event and whilst that's a like a fantastic policy solution sort of the government implications of, of that in terms of responsibilities for like upkeep and maintenance and all that sort of stuff is a really big challenge on its own but the process up front to do that precinct level climate risk assessment before the planning really got underway was was good and I'd like to see that happen more routinely as part of those processes so there's one policy outcome I'd like to see what about you Alex it's a, it's a really difficult one, to be honest. I think the common denominator to really make sure that policy doesn't lag too far behind the science. And in some ways, I think the science, it's a chicken and egg. Science also depends on policy because this, if there's no funding dedicated to the science, then the science lags as well, right? So for me, the common denominator is communication, right? So if different 
parties are speaking in different language or not understanding each other. For example, look at the floods recently when a very simple term like return period of one in a hundred years, it created such a, a confusion among, on one hand, the politicians and then the policymakers and then the local councils. Every, everyone had a different take on what a one in hundred year means, right? So that, that's not helpful communicational language and it can be improved. But coming down to the communication piece, at the end of the day, policymakers, I view them as the government, they reflect the will of the people in a democracy, right? And the people really are the ones that, that will then compel action from the government. So, for example, if you look at the post-COVID budget, and I don't want to get into politics here, but if you look at the post-COVID budget and you look at the allocation to clean energy, the, the tiny portion of that for Australia compared to other countries' budgets, then you start to wonder, are they really reflecting the will of the people? And are they really reflecting the latest science and what? a scientific response should be. If you look at COVID again, drawing the parallels there, you look at policy response as a function of the scientific outcomes, all in fast forward mode with COVID. Everything's moving in fast forward, everything's changing. But even within that very dynamic risk landscape, you could see governments that have arguably performed better. And, and on this end, Australia's performed well. Uh, but, it, you know, arguably it's because they followed the science, right? Whereas others that maybe yeah, didn't follow the science as closely and still promoted mass gatherings or no mask or things like that. They, they've had much worse health outcomes. So I, I, I would think that there, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from COVID in terms of how policy uh, can be best reflect the science and how the two can work better together in, let's say, a virtuous feedback loop. Can I just pick up that point you made, an analogy to health, but probably beyond climate policies, looking at the opportunities amongst other national and state-based policies and health on its own is a really interesting one. If we, we look at the work that is being done nationally through the Climate and Health Alliance, you look at the work that's been done by the AMA and like how strong that link is between climate risk, but also the impact of living in a coal region for 40 years on, on human health. And that's, you're seeing a really interesting connection point, which is probably being made for the first time over the last five or 10 years, but actually starting to see itself in policy. One of the manifestations of that is that the community health and wellbeing plans, which are a requirement on local government, which is being undertaken right at the moment, there's the consideration of climate change and climate risk as one of the drivers for health and wellbeing. So I'm hopeful that when we're thinking about policy, we're not just thinking about planning policy and climate policy, we're thinking about all the other aspects of daily life that climate impacts, whether that's health, whether it's legislation or policy that applies to running a business, where we're thinking about it holistically and looking for those integration opportunities where we can strengthen our approach by taking a more holistic view of things overall. Absolutely. One thing I almost forgot to mention is also, I think scientists have a role to play in all this as well, not just in furthering the science, but also defending that science, right? So 
If I were to take an example, recent one in climate risk, physical climate risk space, I was really happy to see this article in Nature that was published. Nature is one of obviously the, the most highly decorated, most prestigious journals. And the title was Business Risks and the Emergence of Climate Analytics. And it was actually written by an uh, ex-professor of mine uh, at, at the University of New South Wales, uh, himself a, a distinguished author on the IPCC, Andy Pittman, right? So he was one of the authors on that paper that really clearly highlighted the risk of all this, this sudden explosion, if you like, of climate service providers everywhere because ostensibly due to the increased demand for disclosure and business revenue from this area. But also, he really drew the line in terms of the upper limits of predictability of some of these climate models and the potential misuse or the risks of misuse. So it was really good to see a, a very respected scientific figure actually publish on that, on the emergence of this of this phenomenon, if you like. It's a tough one because you don't want the scientific community to get political, but then if they're defending the science and that's it, right? And, and because all these models are also calibrated by the science, they're built by the scientists themselves, but they, if they're being misused, then I think that the owners or, or the initial kind of creators of the tool have do have a big say in how they're eventually applied in policy. People shouldn't work in silos and they should work together. Responding to climate is actually fundamentally a conservative mindset in that you're about making sure that your ability to withstand something at its core, conservative means... It's compatible, right? It's compatible. Careful. If you think about risk, really, really good risk management enables you to take risk, mm. right? But, but puts you in a position where you've got guarded against downside. So that's, that's essentially what great risk management is because good risk management it only, okay, protects you against the bad stuff, right? But great risk management actually allows you to try and tap into that good stuff without burning yourself or without completely blowing yourself out of the game. Thank you so much, both for your time and for a pretty robust discussion. A wide variety of not only topics that we've covered, but implications and how pervasive it is across multi-sectors, across policy, in multi-organisations. And hopefully this triggers some points of consideration for a number of organisations, both that we engage with and yourself as well, Alex, and can try and start considering and building in ways to mitigate this risk before it comes an economic loss, as you put it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hypecast. If you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review.